The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. On this week's Science for the People, we're talking about how our urban world gets along with a few of its non-human guests. Later on, we'll talk with Clint Pennock about the urban junk food diet of ants. But first up, we're talking about pest infestations and their sometimes surprising links with social inequality, housing policies, and the political ideology of the day. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell and my guest today is Don Day Beeler, Assistant Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Maryland. She's also the author of Pests in the City. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Desiree. Now, here we have a book about the social, political, economic, and ecological content of pest control in the United States, spanning from the early 1900s up to basically present day. So, paint me a picture of what folks were dealing with back in the 1900s in regards to living with pests. Well, I would say the one thing that we're, that's really, really different from what we have today is that our cities were powered by horsepower. And so we had thousands of horses living in our cities. And that means lots of manure. And although we had systems for removing that manure and hopefully bringing it to farms out in the countryside, those systems weren't always particularly efficient. And they weren't very equal either. Uh, socially, they were very socially equal. So it was often poor communities that were dealing with lots of horse manure caked in their streets. And do you know who likes to breed in horse manure? It's, it's flies. And so there were lots of flies, lots more than we deal with today. Um, that's the biggest difference. But I think also we didn't have at least in American cities in the early 19, or the early 1900s, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have the housing codes that we have today. We didn't have some of the legal protections to ensure higher quality housing. I think our housing, we still have a lot of housing quality problems today, but the housing quality problems were much worse then. And that meant that it was much easier for roaches and rats to take hold in our um, in our homes. And one last thing that was really different back then was that almost everybody spent some part of their lives living with bed bugs. Um, we've heard lately of a bed bug resurgence, but uh, nothing compared to what it was back then. You know, today, these days you might have a friend, or maybe you've had a run-in with bed bugs, and you might know a few people who've who've encountered them. But back then, everybody would have had bed bugs at some point. Um, and, but uh, another thing to point out, and that's actually the same as today, is that um, it was easier for some people to get rid of bed bugs than it was for other folks. And why was that? A lot of it had to do with how much disposable income you had. And in the late 19th century, late 1800s, uh, wealthier folks discovered that if you had, if you hired enough staff, you could have those staff work really hard to get rid of your bed bugs, and then you wouldn't have to live with them anymore. And there might be a bed bug there, here or there, hiding behind a painting on the wall, or in that little bit of uh, wallpaper that had torn away, there might be some bed bugs living in there, but nobody ever noticed them in the homes of the wealthy. And if those tiny little infestations started to grow again, you could have your staff get on it right away. 
So, uh, but but poor folks couldn't uh, couldn't afford to hire extra people to take care of those bed bugs. So you hear a lot of stories about this might be a once monthly or every other weekly kind of chore. Uh, the kids would bring the mattress out in the backyard and they would bang it with a, a broom handle or something like that over a big pot of soapy water, and the bed bugs would hopefully fall into that pot of water. You wouldn't get them. And so by the next month, you've had, you'd have more bed bugs again, and you'd have to do it again and again and again. Uh, so poor folks did the best they could with what they had, um, but they were basically toiling and toiling away to try to get rid of bed bugs and not really succeeding. Okay, so, so that's disgusting. Um, but did, <laughs> did, did, did people during that time period understand that pests are, were not only annoying, but they could cause illness? Well, this is a time when they're just starting to realize that specific infectious diseases could be spread by pests. And really, before 1900, very few regular folks, very few lay people knew about germ theory. And there might have been suspicions that pests spread specific kinds of diseases, but um, but it wasn't really well known. Now, there are some really interesting stories about um, what people knew about rats. And if we go all the way back to, uh, to the, the plague uh, hitting Europe um, back in the Middle Ages, there were people who suspected that rats were carrying it. Now, I have to say at the same time, we've had recent research that suggests it was actually other things that were causing plague in Europe. But um, people suspected that rats could carry various different kinds of diseases. Um, people suspected that roaches might make you sick, and so they're disgusted by them. Um, but people were just really starting to get some confirmation that this might be possible. So what was the public perspective on these kind of infestations then? The public, um, the public perspective was starting to be shaped by was starting to be shaped by germ theory, really. But there was also another perspective, um, especially if you talk about bed bugs, uh, because the upper class folks could hire enough staff to get rid of their bed bugs. Um, and the lower um, income folks couldn't hi- uh, couldn't afford to hire that staff, and um, therefore they were the ones usually suffering with bed bugs. There started to be this kind of class stigma associated with bed bugs. They used to be kind of a universal thing, a shared experience, but in the early 19- 1900s, just around that turn of the century, bed bugs started to have this class connotation, and so people started saying, "Oh, don't hang out with those classmates of yours." They they, they smell a little buggy, and indeed, if you have enough bed bugs, they start to have a little bit of a smell to them. It's kind of like a, a rotten raspberry smell, um, a lot of people have said. Um, so they, they started to have this uh, this stigma. Um, so that was that was a really uh, big problem with bed bugs. So how did it become a political issue then? Well, there were lots of efforts. I'll stick with the case of bed bugs here. Um, there were lots of efforts to try to rise, raise up the condition of the lower classes. And um, the, the International Settlement House movement was one aspect of that. And they started to draw attention to the conditions that poor folks were living with and the fact that they lived with terrible infestation. And in some cities... That turned into an effort to improve the quality of housing. That also happened on a national scale in the United States when the United States started to create uh, federally funded public housing. 
And so that was in the late 1930s in the U.S. And one of the uh, big efforts when public housing first got started in the U.S. was to try to get rid of bed bugs in public housing. In some cities, 50% or more of low-income tenants moving into publicly subsidized housing had a bed bug infestation at home. And if they were going to bring their belongings into uh, public housing, they were going to bring along the bed bugs. And some managers of public housing started to say, wouldn't it be amazing if we could ensure that people lived in a clean, healthy living environment in these new publicly subsidized homes? And part of that is going to mean getting rid of the bed bugs. So uh, to have enough funding to do that and to then have enough funding to keep uh, people's homes clean afterwards, that was a, a political issue. And in fact, after about 10 years or so, uh, these initial efforts to remove bedbugs from public housing started to encounter some problems because there wasn't sufficient funding. Um, by then, the pesticide DDT had been invented, and many people thought that was a very good thing for um, for getting rid of pests in public housing, but uh, it turned out to be a bigger problem than people expected uh, to begin with. They thought that DDT would be a very cheap and easy way of getting uh, pests out of public housing, but it actually, this uh, the lack of spending in other areas actually led to DDT becoming a big problem. So, of course, you know, as with almost any other political issue that I can think of, it was really a conversation about uh, societal responsibility versus individual responsibility, correct? Precisely, yes. Yeah. So... The, the discussion was about, well, isn't this the fault of the people who are living with these pests? Isn't it, isn't it people's fault um, because they haven't gotten clean enough to get rid of their bed bugs or in later days than their, their cockroaches? Shouldn't they be responsible for cleaning up and therefore getting rid of them? Um, but the, uh, the counter argument that was offered by activists and reformers in a lot of cities was that actually they these creatures inhabit entire housing complexes and entire neighborhoods. And the condition of those housing complexes and the condition of those neighborhoods was actually what was causing those high rates of bed bug or cockroach or rat infestation. And what really needed to, to happen was to make it possible for everyone to have high quality housing. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Don Day-Beeler, author of Pests in the City. So you mentioned the, the progressive reformers. I'd, I'd like to talk a bit about them, because there were sort of various ways that organized groups were trying to do something about infestations. Uh, so maybe we can just do a little bit of comparison here. Uh, 1902, uh, typhoid. Uh, can we talk about activists in Hull House in Chicago? Because that's a fascinating example. Sure. And um, some of your listeners may be familiar with Alice Hamilton, who was an early, um, very early woman physician. Uh, when very, very few women were getting physician, uh, were becoming physicians in the United States. She was active in Hull House, the International Settlement House movement, um, along with other women in Chicago. And uh, this is a time when there was extreme corruption in the city of Chicago, and it was very easy for 
landlords to leave their tenants in homes that were um, disconnected from the sewer lines and their um, their backyard privies, those outhouses that they used um, to relieve themselves, would have this huge buildup of human waste. And their uh, what they were supposed to do was hire a waste hauler to come in and take away that waste. But just as often, those waste haulers would be very sloppy. They would either not cart the waste away. They might even deposit it in somebody else's backyard. Or the landlords might not hire a waste hauler at all. And so people would be left living with their own waste. And that waste would attract flies. And Hamilton blamed this typhoid outbreak on landlords not, um, not having the waste hauled away from those privies and the flies coming to the privies, picking up typhoid germs and carrying them into people's houses. The flies would land on people's food um, and then the food would be infected and people would become infected themselves. And they actually did experiments about this too to see exactly how far the flies were able to carry bacteria. Right. It was amazing. And there were uh, two other women working with Hamilton who went from house to house um, looking at where the um, clogged up privies were, the, the privies that were full of human waste. And they looked at these flies and figured out how far these flies could, could go. And they, they figured out that these flies were indeed able to go into people's houses. So now what were they trying to do? How did they involve the community with, uh, with their solutions? Well, Hull House was constantly um, drumming up community involvement, and what um, what Hamilton and her colleagues did was um, they they were really looking for people to agitate against their landlords and to get their landlords to actually do something about this waste. Another, uh, actually, the founder of Hull House in Chicago, Jane Adams, um, became involved with uh, she she became actually the the, the guard garbage supervisor. She ran for garbage supervisor in the community so that um, there would be supervision over the quality of, of garbage removal and waste removal uh, so that you wouldn't have these problems with contaminated flies flying around carrying germs. Now, let's contrast that with uh, the Washington reformers that were concerned about housing and flies. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so there was a, a whole series of there are a whole series of reform efforts in the city of Washington D.C., and uh, this was in part um, brought about by Theodore Roosevelt um, basically commissioning a study of um, of housing quality. And a lot of the problems that folks observed in D.C. had to do with um, house flies traveling from basically the same kind of thing, privies, um, into people's homes. There was also a problem in Washington, D.C. where private waste haulers would, the people who were supposed to be taking the human waste out of the privies, just dumping that waste, not in a landfill, not in any kind of sanitary sewer system, but just in people's backyards. And it was always low-income people's backyards, of course. Um, but what um, the, the argument that the reformers in D.C. used is really disturbing, I think, because the, the argument they used for doing something about this problem was um, upper-income people... Uh, 
senators, members of Congress, policymakers, you all, uh, your, your nannies that take care of your kids are coming from these low-income neighborhoods where flies are buzzing over manure piles in the backyard. So that's the reason why you need to take action because your children are going to catch typhoid and other diseases from your nanny. Not that people are living in these poor conditions and, and not that there are waste haulers who are exploiting low-income communities, but because you your kids are going to catch typhoid. Um, so uh, an argument that might seem very powerful, but it actually wasn't, it didn't motivate people to um, to really care for the, these folks living in areas that were being exploited by the waste haulers. Well, I, I think some of their proposed solutions, uh, the there's a very gendered nature to them, to, to the there women. Is. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, so, it, and this might get into another example in New York City around the same time period as well. Um, there was a, uh, is it okay if I, I talk about that for a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so this is actually one of my favorite examples. Um, there was a study done in New York City in the early, it was in the 19-teens, um, and they wanted to see what the effect effects of flies were on, um, on children's health. A lot of children were dying from being exposed to diarrheal diseases. So these are diseases that spread through um, people's fecal matter. And it was believed that flies, again, were picking up germs from that fecal matter and carrying it, especially to children's food, and especially in these low-income communities. And these are communities where many of the stables existed, communities that had lots of problems with privies, just like in other uh, low-income neighborhoods across the U.S., and that had very poor garbage hauling service. So this study um, asked low-income women, um, many of them immigrant women, to tidy up their homes, to use window screens, to keep those window screens closed, to um, make sure everything was very clean in their homes in order to ensure that flies didn't get in. And it's, it was amazing to me when I learned about this study and, and actually read two, two different iterations of this study. They did it on two different occasions. And they didn't go out and clean up the, the barnyards. They didn't go out and clean up the privies. They just said it's women's responsibility to keep your babies healthy. And in order to do this, you need to keep your home tidy and you need to keep those screens in your home. And they sent in a, an army of Boy Scouts to put in those screens. Well, Women in these communities were actually very used to having um, a, a kind of open, uh, open um, conversation with public space, and they weren't used to having these window screens in their windows. And so they would uh, pop open the screens in order to shout out the windows and have conversations with their neighbors. They were used to opening the window screens in the backyard in order to hang their laundry out there. And so this this demand that women keep their window screens closed was an enormous burden on them. It really forced them to change the way they lived, and it didn't do anything to get rid of the flies it themselves. It just put more burden upon um, upon the women, and um, and so these women actually uh, undertook their own form of protest. They ripped out the window screens, which were really expensive. Um, it would have it would have been a much more cost effective solution, as well as being a more just solution to do something about the pollution that existed in these people 
people's environment. So if, if we're looking at the whole house uh, activism and comparing that with, with Washington, can how did how did those groups of reformers differ in, in their concerns and in their solutions? Yeah, these are all people in the progressive area, and we tend to think of the progressive era as this um, wonderful time period when lots of activists are getting involved and doing really great things and, and kind of spreading power um, in society. But actually, progressive reformers were very different. Um, the folks at Hull House in Chicago, I would say, were far more radical. Um, they had more of a care ethic, I would say. They were more about um, engaging residents. Um, they were more about um, getting rid of bad government, uh, getting landlords to take responsibility for their tenants and the environment that their tenants lived in. Um, whereas, on the other hand, the folks in um, New York City and, and to some extent in Washington, D.C. as well, were really about getting individuals to take care of their environments and educating the public. And I, I really uh, I want to put scare quotes around that word educating because they're really they're not educating the, the public about um, the real causes of illness. They're educating the public about what they need to do and how they need to, to uh, take care of themselves rather than creating kind of communal resources um, to, uh, to rein in uh, irresponsible uh, waste haulers, irresponsible landlords, and so on. So did the different approaches actually affect the outcomes? Well, I would, I would say so, yeah. The, the outcomes... Um, in in cities across the U.S., you didn't have flies disappear until um, automobiles became um, became more widespread. Um, and that, of course, automobiles brought with them a whole other suite of problems. But in Chicago, you're actually able to um, we're able to get Jane Adams in. Uh, doing something about some of the waste conditions and we're, we're able to deal with um, deal with the, some of the, the landlords whereas in other um, these other cities the, the problem was not addressed from its root and would you also attribute that to to the nature of community engagement versus uh, putting the responsibility solely on the individual definitely definitely and I, I think you it's not that individuals don't uh, don't need to have a role in sanitation individuals definitely need to have a role in sanitation but part of that needs to be that they need to have the power to um, to keep those with greater power responsible and New York and um, Washington, D.C. weren't holding the people who actually had power responsible for the environmental conditions that existed. This is Science for the People, and we'll be back to talk more with Dawn Day-Beeler about her book, Pests in the City, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm here with Don Day-Beeler, Assistant Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Maryland, and author of the book, Pests in the City. Okay, so let's fast forward to the 1960s. Uh, what's changed in the world of pests and, and the people who are forced to live with them? Well, 
a lot of things are actually depressingly similar, but um, I, I'll, I'll talk a bit about rats actually at this time period. Um, and one thing I would say about this time period, if we look at Harlem um, in New York City, a famous African-American neighborhood, um, Harlem is a really um, interesting place to look at the role of rats in people's lives and um, how, uh, how pests became big problems for people. So this is a time in New York and in many other American cities when, um, when it is legal to discriminate against people of color, um, mostly African Americans in this case. And in New York City, this process of racial discrimination has created um, a separate neighborhood, Harlem, which is largely African American. And because residents of that neighborhood have few choices about where they can rent a home, um, landlords are able to exploit tenants in quite grievous ways. And one of the ways in which um, landlords are exploiting tenants is that they're leaving their home, the, the, the uh, buildings that the tenants live in to decay very, very severely. And this allows rats to move into those buildings. Um, and just to explain a little bit why uh, decayed housing leads to rats, um, you have, um, especially when you have buildings that are carved up into many units, and then um, those units are have fairly large numbers of people in them, more people just means more wear and tear in the buildings by no fault of the residents. It also means that there's more waste coming out of that neighborhood. Um, and if the, that neighborhood is poorly served by city waste haulers, which many low-income neighborhoods are um, and were at this time, then you have more food for the rats. And so Harlem became a neighborhood very heavily infested with rats. I should mention here that some um, African-Americans living in Harlem were very reluctant to talk about this issue. And I can completely understand why, because they felt that if rat infestation was uh, in Harlem was widely spoken about, that they would be blamed for it, along with many other issues. Um, but there is a newspaper in Harlem Harlem called the New York Amsterdam News. This is the city's, really New York City's African-American newspaper uh, with a rich tradition of activism in Harlem. And uh, the, the editors of the New York Amsterdam News were not of the opinion that people shouldn't be talking about rats. In fact, they believed that they should be talking about rats in order to draw attention to exploitation by absentee landlords. And wow, did they ever talk about rats. Um, <laughs> so um, you w there was frequently a situation where uh, a mom or a dad would be very worried about rats chasing their children around the home. And if they were lucky enough to be able to catch the rat, um, they would, uh, it, word would often get back to the editors of the New York Amsterdam News and they would send out photographers and reporters to that home. And so you'd get these great photos of, um, of people holding their rats, showing off their rats uh, to, um, to the newspaper. And that would get publicized across the city, drawing attention, hopefully, to that, to that issue. Now, unfortunately, parents didn't always... Uh, weren't always able to catch those rats. And so there were some cases where rats actually built, bit children. Um, and there were hundreds of cases of rat bites um, in a year in some cities. 
usually it was children who were attacked um, because children, they, they see a rat, they're afraid of it, they try to fight it off, and rats kind of get aggressive in return. And so rats would often um, actually gnaw at, at people's muscles. Um, there were some children who were bitten quite severely and some who actually died from blood loss or from infectious diseases that were transferred from the rats. And in um, 1957, there was one little boy who was attacked by a rat, and um, his his muscles were quite severely consumed by the rat. He lost much much of the much of the muscle on his legs and on his arms, um, and uh, that led to a big lawsuit against the. Um, against the absentee landlord who was a was a corporation based in New Jersey and um his his parents successfully um sued that landlord um and in addition to this one lawsuit the whole um the whole incident drew attention to the conditions that people were living with in Harlem and the city um for one thing they they passed a bill um called the Sharkey Brown Isaacs bill and this was one of the first laws uh local laws in the United States banning racial segregation and so this meant that it should be easier for African Americans to rent homes in any neighborhood where they could afford it. Um, now, being able to afford it was another matter, um, but that at least that racial discrimination was um, was not going to be there anymore. Uh, but there was already this whole neighborhood of Harlem that was populated largely by African Americans, and the conditions in Harlem were terrible. Um, so the city, in addition to passing this law, also launched a drive, a, a, a code enforcement drive against the landlords and brought thousands of them into court and force them to make repairs. Um, so there was this effort at repairing the buildings. However, just within a few years, um, the building's condition degraded again. And by this point, there was a new figure in town, a new, a, a new activist by the name of Jesse Gray. And he was a, a housing activist who um, was, seeking, um, w was seeking better conditions for people in Harlem. And he uh, he was a master showman. He was he one time organized a bad housing fair, and he was like a carnival barker. You know, step right up, uh, step right up and see the cockroaches. Step right up and see the rats that inhabit Harlem residents' homes. Step right up and put your arm right through this hole in the wall, <laughs> um, uh, and and drawing attention to all these um, these wrongs against people living in housing in uh, in absentee landlord owned housing in Harlem. And um, but what he did in the winter of um, 1963 was his most amazing um, was one of his most amazing feats, and that was uh, what, what he did was he organized hundreds of families to withhold rent from their landlords. So it was a, a rent strike, and what happens in a rent strike is you have to pr prove that your landlord has let conditions get so bad that um, that it's he's basically evicting you with those bad conditions. And what Jesse Gray convinced people to do was to bring all the rats they had caught to court when landlords were were bringing uh, were being brought to court to uh, to face the, the tenants who weren't uh, paying the rent. And so he had hundreds of people bringing rats to court, and uh, it, it was a successful rat drive. And um, again, the New York City uh, government launched a drive to bring these landlords to responsibility. They set up an escrow account so residents could pay their rent into the escrow account while the landlords were making repairs. So um, Jesse Gray put rats to amazing use in his housing activism. 
So just to be clear then, these kind of infestations, uh, not only the rats, but, but cockroaches as well, uh, as part of a broader social justice dialogue, they, it was actually contributing to civil unrest. Oh, it was. And actually, um, just a few years later, there was an effort um, by then-President Lyndon Johnson to uh, to give more uh, federal funding for rat control in cities. And uh, one thing that happened in the course of his trying to pass that bill was that largely Republican and largely Southern rural senators and um, or, sorry, members of Congress um, actually laughed the bill off the floor. This is in 1967. Um, and they, they basically made fun of the issue of rats. Um, uh, but uh, that this is the summer of 1967, and several cities saw civil unrest over racial segregation and racial injustice. And um, and uh, uh, some activists, including Jesse Gray, Jesse Gray uh, brought a, a group down from New York City, and they stormed onto the floor of Congress, yelling "Rats cause riots." Um, and so they were basically saying that the conditions that brought about rats also brought about such a degree of dissatisfaction and unhappiness that that was what actually caused um, many of the urban uh, uh, instances of civil unrest that summer. Well, and now what's so interesting about this to, to me is, you know, you could look at the early 1900s and say we didn't really understand the, the, the ecological or the social aspect of this, but, but science knew what was going on <laughs> by this time. Right. We, we, we knew how to kill the rats, did we not? Yes, we, we, we certainly know how to kill rats. I mean, um, there are lots of different ways to kill a rat. We had lots of different kinds of poisons, lots of different kinds of traps. Um, so, uh, and, you know, the, there's a, whole, I think there's a an animal rights issue here that we could talk about kind of separate from that. But I think actually maybe something that, that brings together both the animal rights and the civil rights aspects of this is that we uh, in the United States had conditions in cities that bred rats. And the conditions that bred rats were the same conditions that kept people unhealthy. And we never really got to the root of those conditions. So you can kill rats all day long, and you're still going to have more rats breeding if you have poor quality housing and poor sanitation. And um, if you just think about it in those terms, you wouldn't have to kill so many rats. You wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't need to be killing rats to protect people if you prevented the rats from breeding in the first place. And that would also give people healthy housing and healthy living conditions. So again, does this just come down to being a political issue? If we know how to solve these problems, um, but we decide not to, based on I'm still not sure what, just people perception that individuals should be responsible for their own conditions. Um, I'm a bit lost. <laughs> what? Like, is this just racism? <laughs> like, can we just attribute it to racism and be done with it? Well, I think it's I think it's a really complicated aspect of social injustice, including racial injustice. And I think it's it's the fact that we have never exerted the political will and never applied sufficient financial and other resources to try to make sure that people's housing is healthy. 
And I think we think of housing as, as this kind of static thing. And you build housing and we live in cities and our housing is supposed to protect us from the elements and protect us from nature. Um, and, and I'm actually, a, I, I want to say that I'm someone who loves nature and I don't think that we need to necessarily separate people from nature in cities. But there are these aspects of nature in cities that are, that are harmful to people. And um, if we just assume that our housing is solid and how our housing is stable and is going to uh, be a, a wall against those un unpleasant elements and those unhealthy elements um, that can get in, and we don't do something to maintain it and keep it healthy, then um, then we're going to have a lot of people living in very bad housing and living with um, aspects of nature that others don't have to live with. Um, and I think that's the problem. We we haven't um, we haven't taken the time to understand the way housing decays and the way we need to maintain housing. And it costs a lot of money to maintain housing. And we would rather put that money into other things. We're, we're putting an awful lot of money into uh, defense in the United States. Um, and think of the 1960s. This is the time of the, of the U.S.-Vietnam War. And part of the reason why Lyndon Johnson's effort at, um, at doing publicly funded rat control didn't work was that so much of his budget was going to fight the Vietnam War. And I, I actually blame the, the Vietnam War and the American involvement in, in that region, um, which was, a, you know, a part of the Cold War, one of the battles of the Cold War. I blame that for our resistance to actually doing something about housing conditions in the United States. We should have been putting money into making people have high quality, healthy housing rather than putting it into that, um, that foreign escapade. Um, and so we're, uh, we're really talking about short term versus long term concerns then, which we I think as so, humans have yeah. a huge problem with. We, we do as, as humans and I think as, as Americans as well. And um, I, I also think of uh, a, a, another great activist of this, this time period who passed away very recently, Gil Scott Heron, who had that wonderful um, spoken, uh, spoken poem, um, Whitey's on the Moon. And uh, while the American government was spending millions of dollars in the space program, um, looking to the stars for inspiration, we could have been looking to our cities for inspiration and looking to the idea that we could make our cities healthy, supportive places where everyone gets to live in um, clean, healthy housing. And, and we, we just didn't do that. Um, and so in, in the, the poem Whitey's on the Moon, in case you haven't heard that, um, am I allowed to say this on the Absolutely. radio? Am I violating? I didn't no, want to I violate copyrights. <laughs> um, uh, it, it goes, uh, it starts out, a rat done bit my sister Nell and Whitey's on the moon. And um, Gil Scott Heron goes on to talk about all the, the troubles that um, his sister Nell goes through um, because of this rat bite, um, all the doctor bills that they have to pay, and yet so much money is going to put Whitey on the moon. And um, I, I think it's an amazing observation that we are looking to the stars for inspiration rather than looking here on Earth for things that we can make better. Well, and I'd also sort of as an aside, I think this is very representative of why uh, a lot of just normal average people don't think science has any bearing on them. <laughs> 
Um, that's, that's a great observation. But, you know, another thing that was going on in the 1960s and 70s was that um, activists were actually getting involved in science. And um, there was a whole Science for the People network um, in the United States, and I, I'm guessing in other countries as well. And one local chapter um, was uh, working in Philadelphia, actually got local youth involved, uh, community college students involved in doing some holistic rat control in some communities. And so they were actually trying to figure out what are the underlying conditions that are leading to um, to rat infestation in some of our communities in Philadelphia. And they, they went out there and, and figured it out. And it wasn't just about poisoning rats. It was about getting rid of the social inequalities, getting rid of unequal sanitation, unequal housing, and so on. Uh, for those of, of the audience that don't know, uh, the Science for the People group that you just mentioned, that is directly where we took our name from. Yes. <laughs> we, we very much have a, a kindred spirit with them. And you're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Dawn Day Beeler, author of Pests in the City. And we don't have much time left, but um, I really do want to sort of compare and contrast the most recent bedbug outbreak. It has, has the narrative around these kind of infestations changed? Have the responses? Uh, I think there's starting to be a somewhat more enlightened understanding of bed bugs. Um, there, there has been sometimes during this uh, this recent uh, resurgence. Um, I, I've heard this narrative: um, everybody can get bed bugs. They're the great equalizer, and uh, people will cite um, the case of various celebrities who've had run-ins with bed bugs. I think Howard Stern, the the radio personality, is an example. And Maya Rudolph, the comedian, um, is another example of, of celebrities who've had run-ins with bedbugs, and that got a lot of publicity. And then you hear about, like, Bloomingdale's, the upscale uh, boutique store, uh, had an infestation of, of bedbugs. And so I, I think a lot of people have looked at those examples and thought, oh, they're, they're kind of getting knocked down to our size, those, those celebrities and those, uh, those high-end uh, retailers, because um, everybody can get bedbugs. Um, but the truth is that it's still expensive to get rid of bed bugs, and it's still something where if, if you can hire some outside folks to come in, if you've got that, that disposable income and you can hire some pest controllers to come in, you're going to get rid of your bed bugs much more quickly and much more easily than if you're doing it yourself or if you're hiring maybe a less expensive uh, contractor to come in and help. Um, and so I've started to hear um, more realization of this. And indeed one um one a really important member of the, the pest control um, industry, a scientist who advises pest controllers, has actually come out and said this. Uh, I attended the Congressional Bedbug Summit a few years ago, um, and he, he said right right there in Congress, bedbugs are not the great equalizers. <laughs> um, bedbugs are actually, they affect low-income people more than they affect upper-income people because low-income people can't afford the, the uh, very effective solutions that upper-income people have been getting um, to when they've got a bed bug infestation. And so they're more vulnerable to continued bed bug infestation, and they're more vulnerable to reintroduction of bed bugs, even if they've managed to get them under control. Um, and so I'm, I am starting to hear this realization um, from people who are very smart and who have a lot of influence on, um, on pest controllers. I wouldn't say that they have that much influence on policy. Um, the bed bug 
summit in Congress was a very small affair, and the um, the members of Congress who introduced this bill said that some people had laughed at them when when they mentioned they were sponsoring this bill uh, to to uh, have kind of more of a, a federal response to bed bugs, but. Um, I, I'm starting to hear some some better responses, and I'm seeing um, local communities pass some laws to to allocate more responsibility to landlords. I'm hearing about. Um, actually members of the pest control industry doing more outreach with um, lower income communities and making sure that they are, are getting the resources that they need. Um, and I'm hearing about great organizations. Um, for example, um, the, there's some organizations in New York City. Uh, Ray Lopez is a great activist in New York City with um, uh, some health-based community organizations who's who has devised some methods that are not too labor intensive to help lower income people uh, address their bed bug situation. Um, so I'm I, I'm optimistic that um, about our under, a better understanding of bed bugs. I'm not optimistic that we're actually going to get rid of them. Um, I, I think bed bugs are here to stay for a while, and they are going to be um, there are going to be trouble for a lot of people. But I think the conversation has gotten more enlightened. So then, are are we getting better at seeing sort of the the broader social justice context when we're trying to deal with public health concerns? I think in some cases we are. I think in some cases we are. And um, I think that's that's coming out. I, I do think it's there's still a problem with stigma, and that's going to remain a problem a until we really get our conversation about bed bugs and, and cockroaches. We've still got lots of people living with cockroaches who don't need to. Uh, until we get that out in the open, um, a lot of people are going to be afraid to come forward because they're afraid they'll get evicted. Um, they'll be afraid that they'll be shunned because they live with unwanted creatures. And so we need to remove a lot of the stigma. And it's really important to pair um, any kind of social justice kind of intervention with an open, frank discussion about the stigma that has been associated with these animals and the, the fact that it's not the fault of the individuals living with them um, in most cases. In most cases, there are lots of um, kind of overarching structural factors that have influenced um, the ecology of these pests and um, have led to greater concentrations of these pests in lower-income communities. Don, brilliant book. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, thanks very much for being here. Thanks so much, Desiree. It's been great to talk with you. And that was Don Day Beeler, author of Pests in the City. We've linked to it on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And next up, another insect species uh, that is adapting to human lifestyles with the effects to be determined. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined now by Clint Pennock, a postdoctoral researcher at North Carolina State Biology, where he studies the behavior and ecology of social insects. He's the author of a study titled, Stable Isotopes Reveal Links Between Human Food Inputs and Urban Ant Diets, which I believe is a fancy way of saying that ants like junk food as much as we do. 
and it's probably our fault. Is that a reasonable paraphrase, Clint? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, why did you decide to research this topic? So when you think about a natural ecosystem um, and what animals are eating, the base of any food web generally draws back to plants. And so herbivores eat plants and carnivores eat those herbivores. Um, but when you go into some place like Manhattan in New York City, you look around, there are some plants, but there's a lot of buildings and concrete. Um, but even then, there still seems to be a lot of animals living in the city. So there's pigeons, there's rodents. Uh, and what I'm most interested in is ants sort of everywhere. So our big question was, what is the base of a food web in an urban ecosystem like New York City? Well, do tell us about the study, sir. So uh, we, had, uh, we decided to use a technique uh, looking at stable isotopes of carbon and nitrogen. So this is a technique that's been used to study what animals eat in natural ecosystems all over the world, but it hadn't been really used in an urban place like New York. And what stable isotopes can tell you um, are two things. So if you look at nitrogen, um, animals that have a higher proportion of the heavy nitrogen isotope, N15, tend to feed more as carnivores compared to herbivores. So nitrogen tells you something about the trophic position of an animal. Um, and, but then the second thing you get from stable isotopes um, is revealed by the carbon isotope. And carbon is actually what we were more interested in because it tells you something about the base of a food web. And so as I talked about before, uh, the base of a food web generally comes back to plants. And so carbon isotopes can tell you whether the base of a food web is drawn from grasses or if it comes from non-grasses, which might be common in a traditional forest ecosystem. And so it turns out when you look at what humans are eating in North America, there's this strong signature of grasses in fast foods. So a standard American fast food meal, and I'm sure in Canada as well, um, starts with a hamburger that's fed on corn-fed beef. Then you have a soda that's either sweetened by corn or sugarcane. Both of those are grasses. And then even French fries at some places are fried in corn oil. So basically every major component of a fast food meal should have the signature of corn or grasses in the isotopes. And so our question was if we could actually tap into this and use this to see if ants in the city were eating fast foods. And what did you find? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so we found maybe unsurprisingly that ants that live in closest contact with humans shift the stable isotope content of their bodies to actually look more like we do, um, particularly North Americans. So if you look at a, uh, stable isotopes in something like a hair sample from a person living in New York City and someone living in Europe or Asia, you can tell who is North American um, based on this carbon signature. And so we found the same thing. You can tell which ant species in New York are living in closest contact with humans based on their carbon isotopes. And so there were really... Um, several key findings uh, to this study. Um, the first is what I just mentioned, is that we could tell that the species living in closest contact with humans um, are eating more of our foods based on their isotopes. But our group has been working in the city for kind of a long time now, and another co-author on this study, Amy Savage, has been doing a lot to study which ants live in New York City and where. And what she's found is that there's there's something like over 40 species of ants in Manhattan, which is a pretty good number. Um, but of those, most of them you only find tucked away 
uh, in sort of remnant forests and parks like Central Park, um, Inwood Hill in the north of, of the island. Um, but a subset of those 40 species are the ones that are found um, only in the most urbanized areas of the city. And so where we work, we work along Broadway um, in a strip of traffic islands that are sort of these green spaces that run between the traffic lanes in the city. And there, there's tiny patches of green. Um, and then on either end, there's a bench that people can sit on. And there's a trash can, uh, which provides human foods uh, to ants that are living there. And, and beyond that, the, the absolute most urban place that an ant can live in the city is the, the sidewalk. And so we also looked at what ants were eating on the sidewalk. So when we look at what ants are living on the sidewalk in New York, it turns out there's one species um, called the pavement ant, which is a name you could have probably guessed. Uh, their scientific name is Tetramorium species E, um, which is kind of interesting in that they're one of the most common ants in cities across the entire world, um, but they don't even have a real scientific name. They're, they're just species E. Um, so we're still, there's still a lot to find out about this species. And out of all of the ants that are living in New York, it turns out the pavement ant is the one that's eating human foods the most. And so this was one of the, the, the key findings of our study was that the species that tend to be associated with cities um, in New York in particular and, and other cities like the pavement ant um, that travels um, all over the world tend to be the ones that are the best ants at eating human foods. Okay, so I have so many questions about about this study. <laughs> First of all, so does this give the pavement ants an evolutionary advantage, like the ability to eat crappy food? Oh, exactly. That's what we think might be going on. Um, and so pavement ants, they're from Europe originally, and they've been living in human cities, you know, at least for hundreds of years, if not thousands. So they've had some time to get used to our foods. Um, but another thing that might be going on and what's probably more likely is that this species, for whatever reason, just seem to be pre-adapted uh, to eating a human diet. And so out of all the ants, maybe they're faster at finding our food when we drop it on the sidewalk um, and they recruit all the workers to bring it back to their nests. Or our foods just are a pretty good match for the things they need in their diet. Because I, I feel vaguely guilty for potential ant junk food preferences now. Is, this, is there <laughs> anything inherently wrong with, with ants eating junk food? Well, I mean, from the ant's perspective, I think it's great. So they don't have to scrounge around and looking for a sort of wounded or dying insects uh, in the dirt. Um, and, you know, if you spill your soda on the ground, I mean, for a lot of ant colonies, that's food for a week, right? That, there's a lot of calories in the sugar in a soda um, and also the fats and oils that are in a hamburger or ice cream or anything else we might drop. And for some, for a species like the pavement ant, it seems like they're doing great. So their colonies are gigantic. They have thousands of workers. They're pretty much on every sidewalk in Manhattan. So for them, it seems uh, to be more of a boon to their populations um, than any kind of negative. But we're, we actually are kind of still interested in thinking about, well, what happens to urban species uh, when they start feeding on these non-traditional diets? And, and so we know at least, you know, the, the best case study we have really is on humans. And when humans switch to fast foods, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of problems that most people I think are aware with, um, with obesity and diabetes, um, and all kinds of these, um, these issues. 
But so far, we haven't been able to see any negative effects for, for urban animals in general. So one of the best studies looked at kit foxes, a type of fox that lives in Bakersfield, California. And so in this study, they knew the kit foxes were feeding on uh, human garbage and their trash cans at night. Um, and when you look at kit foxes that live in the city, they have higher cholesterol levels compared to kit foxes that live um, outside the city or eating things like rodents. Um, but and, and so that, in some ways, is similar to what we see in humans, higher cholesterol when you eat fast food. Uh, but for the kit foxes, they don't seem to have any negative effects on their health. So even though they had high cholesterol, they, they have more babies than their rural counterparts, and their populations are more stable. Um, so at, initially, at least looking at something more similar to a human, like a fox, a mammal, um, there doesn't necessarily seem to be the same negative health effects um, that we see in humans. Now, for something like ants, we they are physio physiologically completely different from humans. Um, but we do think that there might be some negative consequences to switching to a human diet. And so just like humans, if we start eating fast food, we tend to get a lot fewer vegetables and other uh, nutrients and vitamins in our diet that we might otherwise have gotten. It's possible that ants living in New York are facing similar challenges. So one of our hypotheses that we've been um, going out to test uh, is whether uh, ants that live in the city um, have a stronger taste for junk food and really do prefer that over other foods in their environment. And that's, or whether... exactly, that's exactly my concern. There's a difference between, you know, eating whatever's handy, where humans are just as bad at that as, as ants are. But mm -hmm. do we actually see a shift in their preferences? And so when you look at across the species of ants, we think that the ants that live in the city in these urban areas do tend to have stronger preferences for human foods than something like you might, um, than a species you might find in a forest or in the parks in New York. So from, from that perspective, I think we do see species that are going for junk food more in the city than the species that live in parks. Um, but within those species that we know, like the pavement ant, um, that, that are living in New York and eating human foods, we, we actually have a hypothesis that even though they're really good at eating junk foods and there's a lot of those foods there, that there might be something else that they want more, um, if it, if it happened to be abundant. And for an ant, um, health food, uh, <laughs> Uh, might be something really like dead insects. Right. It doesn't sound quite so appealing to us as humans. Um, it's not a smoothie. I guess you could make a smoothie with dead insects, but I haven't tried it. Um, but for ants, we think, you know, that's what they might be missing in their diets. They normally feed on insects that have all kinds of different nutrients and possibly vitamins and different types of fats in their bodies. And there might be some micronutrients there that ants would rather go for if it was present. Um, but otherwise, they're doing quite fine. At least um, if you ask New Yorkers how the ants are doing in the city, I think they would tell you that as well. Um, um, just living off junk food. Now, do do ants actually have a sense of taste? Can they taste the difference between junk food and whatever they would consider their normal, healthy, delicious snack? Yeah, they they do have um, they do have taste, and they can definitely taste the difference between you know sugar and fats. Um, and in some cases, proteins. Um, so they have these little appendages on the, the end of their mouths called palpi um, or palps. And they use these. They have um, kind of like taste buds we have in our tongue. Um, but they're on this little organ that they rub against food that looks kind of like an extra set of antennae. And so, yeah, they can they can taste things. So, of course, my question is, how does one research ant diet preferences? 
Um, you know, you really just go out and ask them, right? Um, I mean, they can't talk, so you have to be a little bit more creative about it. Um, <laughs> but what we do is we, we give them sort of a buffet of foods to choose from, and then we look at which item that they prefer. Um, some of the studies we started out looking at, we just break it down to those things like I mentioned, sugars that are sweet, uh, fats, proteins, and salts. And all of those things are important components of a fast food diet. Um, but just we wanted to compare what ants in different parts of the city actually were missing. If they were more interested in something like sugars, we'd predict that the ants would end up more um, at the sugar end of the buffet line. Um, and if they were more interested in something like proteins or fats, which are associated with insects, um, then we predict that they'd be more closely or there'd be more ants um, going to those food baits. You are doing fascinating work. Sir, <laughs> I will definitely be keeping my eye on this. <laughs> thank you. Clint, wonderful to have you here. Thanks. I am. Thank you. And we've linked to postdoctoral researcher Clint Pennock and his work on our website at signsforthepeople.ca. And since you're on the site already, why not check out the links to everywhere we exist on social media so that you can be the first to hear about upcoming episodes and show news. Or you could click the iTunes link where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show feed, or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.